Weekly You Demon. A Catholic guy's perspective on everything that matters. Culture, society, drinking, philosophy, religion, even politics. Enjoy. Episode 24, Slamming Into Miami. Had a great time at a bachelor party last weekend. Made podcasts a little bit difficult. Going to be a little bit of an unconventional approach this week, but I think it came out really well. I think you're going to enjoy it. As always, thanks for listening. So a regular listener contacts me and asks me what I think about Thomas Akempis' The Imitation of Christ. And I just wholeheartedly endorsed it. It's a wonderful book. I think it's it's a great uh, delving into the psychology of devotion. On top of that, I think it's a great bridge to our Protestant brothers. I, I bought it when I was a Lutheran. Absolutely loved it before I even thought about converting to Catholicism. And it's not a surprise because the Imitation of Christ kind of sits at the crossroads at the end of the Middle Ages, right before the Reformation started. Both chronologically, it was written less than 100 years before Luther nailed his 95 Theses to the Wittenberg door. But even philosophically and theologically, Thomas Kempis was part of this new school called the Modern Devotion, or the New Devotion. And it was stained by nominalism. And nominalism was, quite frankly, just a philosophical error that um, motivated or fueled the, the Reformation. And I want to discuss nominalism because it's it's a awfully important philosophical movement. But I went back and listened to a Theology on Tap lecture I did. It's on YouTube. You can download it. And I listened to that and I thought, I don't think I can top it. I must have been on fire that night. And I guess it's because, you know, for these Theology on Tap lectures, you know, I have a couple of drinks beforehand. I go in there. The place is packed with hot chicks. And you got the lighters in the air. And girls are throwing their bras at me. And it's just... I really get stoked up for these Theology on Tap lectures, and I think I did a pretty good job with it. So I have just now cut and pasted five minutes of that lecture into this podcast. I think you'll like it, so here it goes. I got to talk a little bit of philosophy, okay? And I'm going to talk about a thing called nominalism. Now you got to listen carefully. I'll try to lay it out. If you've been around 18-month-olds, you, you, I think you'll understand what I'm talking about. An 18-month-old is with his mom, and a cat goes across the floor. And his mom looks and says, cat. And 18-month-old says, cat, repeats it. Next day, a white cat goes across the park. Mom says, cat. 18-month-old says, cat. Next day, a big tabby walks over. And 18-month-old, without prompting, says, cat. Okay, what the heck happened just now? How is it that us as human beings can form what we call abstractions? Or these, what the, what, this is called the problem of universals. If we are strictly material beings with nothing spiritual about us, what took three disparate material items and all of a sudden came up with a thing like catness? You, know, you don't have to see every cat to identify it. You identify them as a species, basically. And that, that basically was, that's, there's, there's heavy proof, by the way, that we're all immortal with immortal souls. The fact that we can do that. And if you sit back and think about it, it's really stunning. So there must be something about us that's not mere matter. If we're all matter, like um, some scientists say would have us believe, um, we couldn't do that. 
some, there's something in us that's not matter that allows us to abstract like that. William of Ockham, I don't know what this guy's problem was, but he comes along, he did a couple other things as well, but he came along and said, no, there's no such thing as a nature like catness or dogness or chairness. Um, we don't abstract. The reason we call it all, that cat, cat, even though we've seen it before, is because God makes the pure ghost as a cat. Ockham thought anything less than that, anything saying catness, that was detracting from God's glory. And so Ockham is saying, so no, there is no catness or dogness. They're all individual things, and God makes them appear to us as all cats. And he could change his mind on that if he wanted to, but that's why I see it. Okay? You go from that, it says, and also there's no, there's no human nature either. Because there's, there's no universal nature of anything. It's just what God makes it appear to be. So with that, then, you have, you have no natural law. Okay? Um, it's, it's a revolutionary idea. Um, let me take a look at one note here. Yeah, and this is in the handout. Because it gets rid of natural law and denies that man has a human nature, you have to ask yourself the question in the handout. Does God say we have to do things or prohibit things because those things are bad for us or good for us? Or are they bad for us or good for us because God says so? Okay, the Catholic position is clearly the first one. It's part of human nature. Why we don't do this or that? You know, basically, it's you know, the sacraments of grace perfect human nature. That type of thing. Occam's like, no, adultery could be cool, murder could be cool, getting drunk could be cool, but God said they're not, so they're not. But He could change His mind any time. Here, it has nothing to do with who we are. Again, a revolutionary idea, um, and it caught on. You know, that, that's that's the problem. When people would ask Occam, well. How are you going to have morality if you don't believe these things are good or bad for us? He said, well, we got the Bible. What more do you need? The Bible tells us what's good or bad. Who's going to dispute the Bible? And this, by the way, is a testament to just how strong Christianity, the Catholic Church, was. Occam's just like, it's clear. The Bible lays it out. The Bible's not going to change. That's all you need. And do anything else than that detracts from God's glory. And you think you can figure stuff out yourself. You're deluding yourself. You're being arrogant. That's all we need is the Bible. Simple faith. Chill out. Basically, Occam's position. Again, nominalism sweeps large portions of France and Germany. It's taught in the universities. It spawns uh, a type of popular piety. Where, and these are, good, these are good people. Like if you read Thomas Kempis's The Imitation of Christ, it's a classic. Well, Thomas Kempis kind of, he sympathizes with this idea. It's like, you know, just read the Bible, simple faith. You don't need all the scholastic learning and all this nitpicking over, you know, how many, how many angels can dance on a needle of a pen, which, by the way, is never debated. You know, the answer to that is obvious. It's, you, angels don't have extended bodies, therefore none. I mean, so, but anyway, but that, that was never debated in the Middle Ages ever. But still, there was an awful lot of nitpicky type philosophy, and people were kind of tired of it. Ockham kind of cut through it and said, you know, just simple faith. People like Thomas Kempis said, yeah, you're right. Huge burst of popular piety at this time. And this, by the way, is what I found getting rid of these lectures is fascinating. Um, I really hadn't read a lot of history in the, probably the past 15, 20 years that I started getting rid of this. But when I was a younger kid, I did, a younger person did a lot of it. And the narrative from the 1980s to today is disturbing. I remember being taught, learned at University of Michigan, that basically, well, people were just kind of tired of religion and ready for something new. That wasn't that at all. We now know that church giving was through the roof, endowments were through the roof, prayers for the masses were through the roofs. Um, giving money for stained glass windows all through the roof. We know the rosary was picking up big time. None of the stuff really pushing from, from Rome necessarily. Um, 
and it was a, it was a very religious time. And again, you know, we don't we don't know why, but we know that Rome wasn't driving a lot of the popular piety, like Thomas Akempis and the Rosary. Those things were just kind of catching on in and of themselves. All right, Miami Lightning segments. Hey, in short, I was blown away by Miami. Unfortunately, I'm not sure if I was blown away, good or bad. <laughs> just. The place is bizarre, like I've told a lot of people, and everyone in my group agreed with me. If you had just blindfolded me and plopped me in the middle of a Miami neighborhood, I would think I was in the, uh, in the barrio of Honduras or something. It was just, it just screamed Latin America, which tells me why they call it the, the capital of Latin America. And you're talking to a guy who watched, I think, four seasons of Dexter, but Dexter didn't prepare for this. This place is so thoroughly Latin American. It's just wild. One thing that's pretty bizarre is the skylines. You have the Miami skyline, the big one, but then you see skylines scattered like all along the coast. I'm pretty sure there's retirement communities, but these are retirement apartments that are 15, 20, 30 stories tall. And there's like five of them. So again, just, you have one skyline, but then you have other skylines that would, you know, maybe would do a, a city like Fort Wayne, Indiana proud. But they're scattered around. I've never seen anything like that. But I'm going to call BS on the travel channels who told me that Miami is a very bikeable community. They say, oh, the traffic might be bad. And, and it's horrible, by the way. Absolutely horrible. They say it's second only to L.A. And I believe it. It's atrocious, the traffic. But they'd say, hey, the traffic might be bad, but it's a real bikeable community. That's a freaking lie. My son Jack and I rented city bikes. We took them down Miami Beach, five miles. It took us over an hour. And typically, I'd, I'd do five miles in, I don't know, 25 minutes, maybe 30 minutes without breaking a sweat. The walkway along the beach was just crowded. And this is not a peak time, I'm told. But it was just crowded, people going both ways, you know, those skateboards, walkers, joggers, other bikers. There are periodically long stretches of boardwalk along Miami Beach that you're not allowed to ride a bike on. And they have signs talking about, and I think it's like a thousand dollar fine. They're serious, do not take your bike on the boardwalk. So then you ride your bike inland a little ways, and you don't dare go on the freaking streets. They have bike lanes, but <laughs> the drivers use the bike lanes constantly. In fact, we were in a bike lane at one point. And a driver yelled at us for, for to tell us to get off the to get out of the street. <laughs> it's like we're in the freaking bike lane, but they're yelling at us to get off, get out of the street. You can't ride in the sidewalks because they have like parking kiosks, so you have to keep stopping because the parking kiosks are like right in the middle of the sidewalks. So you can barely get your bike around them. Now, I did not ride my bike in Miami itself, but I mean, I was looking. I was just like, there's just no way in hell I'm riding my bike on the streets of Miami either. So. The whole idea that Miami is a bikeable community, that's just a freaking lie. If you like to Uber, you better learn how to lift. On Sunday, I was responsible for getting Alex and I back from Miami to Fort Lauderdale. It's about a half an hour drive. I get up in the morning, I look and see, oh, it's 30 bucks for an Uber. Sweet. I was, I was anticipating 40 to 50. That's what I had read online. That was the cost of an Uber. And then throughout the day, it kept getting higher and higher and higher until it was time to leave. 
and the charge the Uber was 68 bucks. And I was like, ah, freak. You know, but I got to pay it, got to get to the airport. Then my son-in-law, future son-in-law said, look, try Lyft, 31 bucks on Lyft. So 68 bucks to 31 bucks, identical service as far as I could tell. So that's a lesson to you. De- definitely download the Lyft app, test them both out and see where you get the better deal. I'd heard on these, these travel channels that Miami Beach is a hub of gay life. I didn't see it. I saw one overweight black dude with a nipple ring, and that was kind of scary. But you know, he didn't. You know, he didn't come on to me. Although he did seem kind of kind of eager to say hi to me early in the morning. I don't know if he was hoping to, for an early morning romp or what it was. But that was it. I saw no homosexuals holding hands. I saw no you know flaming homosexuals. Uh, so it might be a hub of gay uh, gay life, but they're pretty pretty discreet about it. They're not out trying to make a point. And yeah, I do think Miami is a capital of Latin America based on two things. One, non-enforcement of the traffic laws. One Uber driver joked with us that, yeah, the speed limit laws are more of a recommendation. <laughs> that required. And this is when he was doing like, honestly, I think it was like 55 or 60 in a 30 mile an hour zone. That type of thing was common. I'm not sure going that fast was common. But routinely, 30 miles an hour, these dudes are doing 45. They're going the bike lines. They're blowing through stop signs. It's kind of you know slowing down and going. And then the drinking laws. I had my son Jack and another guy in the group. Both I think twenty. Jack's twenty-two. I think the other guy was twenty-three. But both young looking. I mean, I could place them anywhere from age eighteen to twenty-five. In Michigan, you know, they freaking ask for a three-piece identification and a note from your priest before they give you a drink. Down in Miami, didn't get carded once. No one even questioned it. Which I think is really cool, quite frankly. I, I, <laughs> I like that. But I was, I was just floored. I just don't think. I think it's kind of Latin American countries. It's eh, whatever. You drink, drink whenever you want. One thing I'm kind of proud of. Guys don't take pictures. <laughs> Marie and Abby kept hounding us all weekend. Send pics, send pics, send pics. And I, and I did it. I, I'd step aside from the group and send a pic. But like my wife said, she goes, she goes, we had to keep hounding you because we knew none of you guys would do it. And the girls were just like, why wouldn't you take pictures? <laughs> I was like, I don't know. Every time I stepped out of the group to take a picture, I, I kind of felt like I was asking everyone if they wanted to see me take my pants off or something. It's just like, ah. it's like, dude, you know, yeah, fine, take a picture. Which kind of leads me to my next point, though, about being with these dudes. They're all younger. Now, my son-in-law's father is there too, so he's my age. But other than that, those 14 dudes, all the next generation. And I really dig hanging out with young people. And no, it's not because they keep me young. It's because they point out that I'm old. So I'll give you, a, I'll give you an example. We go down to the beach Saturday afternoon. And I'm a little bit hungover. And I don't deal well with hot weather just in general. I get dehydrated. I, I burn like in 30 seconds. So I walk down the beach, look at the turquoise water, which is absolutely beautiful, by the way. I turn around and go back to the pavilion. Text, texted my wife, and I said, yeah, I said, yeah, all the guys are down at the beach. They're playing spike ball and frisbee. I'm stuck up here in the pavilion reading a book. I said, it's just not fair. Right, but no one's forcing them. <laughs> but anyway... You know, like Alex was saying, yeah, none of the guys, they couldn't care less. I mean, one, being so much older, I'm not germane to their fun. Two, 
So I don't expect more from me. It's like, oh, hey, Alex, where'd your dad go? Oh, he's up in the pavilion reading. It's like, oh, well, yeah, he's old. <laughs> so, <laughs> and I, I, I kind of like, you know, there's no pure good pressure, whereas if I, was, if I was with a bunch of guys my age, they'd be like, come on, man, stay down here. We're all 50 years old. We can all hang out down at the beach. And it's like, no, nope, I'm old. They don't expect much. You know, I went to bed at midnight. Some nights they stay up to 3 o'clock in the morning, but I went to bed at midnight, no one thought anything of it. Again, no pressure. I really like that. Speaking of 3 o'clock, Miami Beach is a wild place. Happy hours go until 10 o'clock. <laughs> because it's not until after 10 o'clock that things really start to get bopping, I guess. Our bus tour driver said that Miami Beach will routinely keep party until 5 o'clock in the morning. Shockingly expensive place, though. My son Jack got two Coronas at this like jazz bar we went to. Twenty-three bucks, two Coronas. Now that was the highest I think we paid, but everything was real expensive. So you're, you've been warned. Two hints, though, if you go to Miami. One, look for food trucks. I didn't see any food trucks in Miami Beach, but I did find one in Hialeah Market, and I'm told they're all over Miami. So look for food trucks. You can get a like a real good. What I, th- what I think is an authentic Cuban meal, although I don't know anything about Cuban meals, I don't really know, but it seemed authentic to me. Cuban meal for like eight bucks, and it was delicious, the one that Alex and I got in Hialeah Market. So look for food trucks. Secondly, if you're in Miami Beach, where you really get raked over the shoals, get it, shoals, coals, raked over the shoals for prices, find On the Rocks Bar. It's right in the southern part of North Beach. And it's a dive bar, no doubt about it. But the, the the drinks are real reasonable. I got Red Bull and vodka. So we had just gotten off the plane and we, we had like two hours of kills. So we sat in the bar for two hours drinking. It's air conditioned um, with the doors open at the same time, which I always like that, by the way. You sit in the bar, the doors are wide open, and it's air conditioned at the same time. I, I dig that. Anyway, they have a Red Bull and vodka. I, I think was five bucks. It was like four bucks for the shot. And it's a... It's a massive shot of vodka maybe like two ounces and then they put their Red Bull on top they charged me a buck for the Red Bull I switched over later to vodka tonics I didn't want to get have too much Red Bull going through my system and the tonic was also a dollar so look for On The Rocks Bar very cheap people were friendly highly recommended I think all of Miami is a CVS <laughs> the, you know the, the drugstore after three tries, I finally located that iconic hotel where the Scarface chainsaw scene took place. You know, that real intense scene where Al Pacino almost gets cut up with the chainsaw. I located it, and it had been converted into a CVS in 2017. <laughs> I sent a picture to the guys. I was there with Jack. We were checking out the Art Deco area of Miami Beach, which, by the way, is freaking awesome. If you go to Miami Beach, you got to check out the Art Deco along Ocean Drive. Anyway, took a picture and sent it to them. They were all kind of laughing at me. Oh, there's that uh, that famous hotel that your dad been wanting to see has been converted to a CVS. When we were out on the bus tour, the bus driver pointed out, over here is where Muhammad Ali trained in Miami Beach You know, for the Sonny Liston fight. And it was a CVS. Marie sent me down to Miami Beach with... One admonition. Well, besides, don't come back with chlamydia. 
but the admonition was, throw away your underwear. She sent me with all my crappy underwear and said, I don't want this to come back. Just throw it away when you're done. It'll free up room in your personal item when you pack to come back. So I was throwing my underwear away, you know, every morning when I changed. <laughs> I, mean, I, was, you know, I, was, I was in rooms with like, four, 15 other guys. I wonder what they were thinking when they saw someone's <laughs> underwear thrown away in the trash. I figured someone crapped their pants. I didn't realize that till like Sunday. I was kind of chuckling to myself. Lots of peeled paint. One of the most bizarre things I, I found about Miami, especially Miami Beach, is these are rich neighborhoods. And the buildings often look like hell. They beat up, dingy, paint peeled. But then you see a BMW in the driveway, so it's obviously not that they can't afford to fix up the buildings. Now we're just wondering, maybe the storms hit so frequently that they just can't keep up on the repairs. It's kind of bizarre. It's like, it just looks kind of run down, but yet not run down. So according to a travel site I read before I went down to Miami, it said that 70% of Miamians speak Spanish at home. We talked to a couple people down there who thought the percentage would be far higher, like 80 or 90%. Anyway, think about that. That's a pretty stunning figure, 70%. That just highlights why they might say Miami is uh, the capital of Latin America. You know, my experience when I was down there you know, for four days you're far more likely to find a Spanish-only speaker than an English-only speaker. I, I'm not sure there are any Miamians who don't speak Spanish. <laughs> you're far more likely to find someone in Germany who speaks English, albeit as a second language, than you are to find someone in Miami who speaks English. It's really, it really is stunning. Now, I'm not objecting, complaining, I'm just saying, it's just, I didn't expect it, it kind of blew me away. Yeah, but that got me thinking you know, about, about just immigration in general. And Miami says over and over again, when you go on the tours, you see it posted that 59,000 Cubans came to Miami in the wake of the Fidel Castro takeover of Cuba. And obviously more have come since, and it's primarily a Cuban-Hispanic population, but there are lots of other immigrants there as well. It got me thinking about, you know, just immigration in general, where did it come from? I don't, I'm not sure a lot of people know this. I'll never forget in the 1990s, I'm sitting with my buddy Dave in my basement in my small town in Michigan. He turned to me all of a sudden and he said, where did all the effing Mexicans come from? <laughs> and I, I said, I don't know. I said, they're all over the place. And it was it was almost literally overnight. You know, it was like one one summer, there were no Mexicans in town. Like when I grew up in this town, we had like maybe two families. And then the next summer, they were all over the place. It's like, what happened? Well, I'll tell you what happened. And I heard this from Benedict Groeschel who was a, a monk, obviously, on EWTN, presumably a holy man, uh, kind of a, a Kennedy Democrat, a uh, big union supporter, you know, kind of traditional Democrat-type Catholic, albeit by the time he died, he'd, he'd kind of had it with the Democrats because of their <laughs> their social policies. Anyway, what well, he pointed out to me, and I've verified it since, it was Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton caused the problem. For generations, I mean, I'm talking 50, maybe 100 years, I'm not sure, a long time, Mexicans had come up from Mexico to work in the ag industry, and they relied on that money. They worked, they busted their hump for six months here in the United States, went back, 
and hung out, took it easy for six months during the winter in Mexico. And they came and went. It was quite peaceful. And the ag industry relied on that help. Labor unions pressured the Clinton administration in the 1990s to shut down that program, or at least make it far more difficult, and really reduce the number of workers that could come across the border in order to increase uh, union wages. Well, didn't work. <laughs> we needed the workers. People here didn't want those jobs. And all that happened is people, Mexicans, had to sneak across the border in order to do the job that their families had been doing for, for generations. But once they snuck over, they didn't want to sneak back across, then sneak back over the next day, or the next year. It is, it's just far too risky, so they just stayed here. That's where the problem came from. And I'm sure that's not the only problem, but that's basically, that, that's not the only reason, but that's, that's the, <laughs> that's the primary causes, this whole Mexican population that we have here, is the fact that Clinton basically shut down the work visa program. Now, that was just mean. <laughs> of the Clinton administration to do that, okay? But then we, we as a country, one-upped it because the Mexicans started finding work in in factories and other places. Well, as you know, when you go to when you go to hire someone, you have to have them complete an IRS form. Gosh, I'm drawing a blank. I think it's a W W nine. Anyway, that sets for that sets forth their social security number. Then the employer would send that into the IRS. The IRS would reject it, saying there's no social security number associated, you know, with this name because the Mexican had just made one up. It was just phony. So the Mexican would give them a new number. They'd just send that in and the IRS would say nothing. At that point, the IRS and the federal government knew, hey, that factory has an illegal alien working there and they did nothing. And you know why they did nothing? Well, I can tell you two reasons. One, we needed the workers. So the unions got their victory on paper. As a practical matter, the Mexicans are still coming over, taking the jobs. But two, and more importantly, the Democrats' shining gem in their history, or what they think of as a shining gem, shining gem, Social Security, was broken. And they knew it was broken. When the baby boomers began to retire, they knew Social Security was going to bankrupt the nation or come doggone close to it. So you bring in all these Mexicans, you accept their bogus Social Security numbers. You deduct 7.65 cents from every dollar they earn to pay for Social Security and Medicare taxes. You put that into the system to bolster your broken system. And then you know that the Mexicans then cannot pull against the money later because they gave a bogus Social Security number. It's, it's quite insidious. It's, it's, it's just shocking. These Mexicans are not wealthy people you are basically depriving the poor of their wages. Now, I don't think we're oppressing them. Okay, I mean, obviously we're not. They're still better off coming here and having 7.65 cents stolen. And again, let's face it, that's effectively what's happening. We're telling them it's Social Security, you get it back later, and we have no intention of giving it back later. Stolen from their paycheck to bolster our broken system because of the stupid legislation we passed in the 1930s. But they're still coming over here. They're still better off doing that than working for the worst, far, far worse wages in that S-hole, as Trump called it, in Mexico. But still, we are depriving the Mexicans of their just wages. Combine that, you know, there's four sins that cry to heaven for vengeance. That's one of them, depriving the poor of their wages. The second one is oppression of the poor. Again, I don't think we're there. In fact, I think we're, we're, <laughs> we're too nice to the poor in this country. But another sin that calls heaven for vengeance 
is infanticide. You know, um, killing of children. Well, we have abortion. We have that on our soul big time. And then the fourth sin, obviously, is the sin of the sodomites. And we're getting that in droves now, too. Anyway, probably not a good state of affairs. Alright, that's a wrap. Check out the Twitter feed. Check out the Facebook page. Go to demonpodcast.com for show notes and other information. As always, thanks for listening.